It's crazy that still, Novak Djokovic was born in 1987, and no one born after 1987 is, on the men's side has still won the Australian Open, or French Open, or Wimbledon. And welcome to a brand new edition of Match Points here on TennisMajors.com, where we continue to debate and discuss the biggest topics in tennis. And this is our first episode for 2023, in which we get a chance to look back at the Australian Opens. We just completed it yesterday. Look at our panel today. We are going head to head. Marian Bartoli, first Ben Rothenberg. Uh, the betting line in Las Vegas, Nevada, has Marian favored minus 450, draw at plus 180, and Ben, you're a plus 275 underdog. So good luck to you on that. My money is always on Marian here, absolutely. As well it should be. All right, let's get at it. We just wrapped up the Australian Open. Some people have come out to say it was very disappointing. So I'll start right there with you guys. Did you find this Australian Open overall to be disappointing? Yes or no? Marion Bartoli, you go first. No, not at all. Uh, I mean, I've been disappointed with the French results. That's for sure. Um, you know, we were hoping that Caroline Garcia could go really all the way, especially when Angeber started to uh, get out of the draw quite early on. And we thought it could be higher, um, especially because when um, Amir Resmo won the Masters at the end of the year in Los Angeles against Marie Pierre, she went on to win the Australian Open in 2006, winning the Masters in the end of 2005. So we really felt she was coming on that as well, on that trend. Um, Caroline, if she would have been able to to take some momentum, unfortunately she hasn't, but I didn't feel disappointed at all. I feel the, the whole Novak Djokovic ability to put everything behind. And, and that was really the big for me topic of this whole Australian Open was to see how much mentally he would have recovered and psychologically from everything he had to go through last year. And I think we, we saw it at the end of the match when he just went to his box, you know, just the, the mental collapse almost he, he had at that moment because he just had to hold on and hold on everything within himself for three weeks in a row. Because basically his injury was starting to be diagnosed towards the end of Adelaide. Then, then he had one week to sort of try to treat it. He played the first week of the Australian Open really heavily strapped um, throughout the first maybe even 10 days. It was only in the final when we removed the sort of big strap and, and kept it with just a kinesio tape. But you could clearly see that during that first week it was not 100% whatsoever. So he had to not only manage his efforts but try to do not sort of making the injury worse as the first matches was going on. And you have to do all of that knowing that what happened last year was still in the back of his mind somehow. So I found that effort absolutely extraordinary. And I think when you have seen the amount of congratulations that start to pour in since yesterday when he won from even Rafael Nadal himself, um, that just shows, I think, that even his peers are appreciating you know, that he just threw his whole heart in that effort. And um, and to see Rafa and, and Nova coming at 22 each right before Ron Garros, who might be the last Ron Garros of Rafa and Nadal, the whole drama with Rafa injury as well, I think we we're definitely not sure of drama, that's for sure. Ben Rothenberg, overall, just for what it was, a disappointing Australian Open or no? Yeah, I was actually pretty disappointed by a lot of it. I agree with Marion that the ending was fantastic. That actually after the last match ended, when, when Djokovic went into the stands and sort of lay on the ground of his player box and just sobbing after he won the title, that was the emotional sort of biggest moment of the tournament. And it came after it ended. And that was a great payoff. But I don't think before that, honestly, that the Djokovic's run had very much suspense to it in any of his matches. None of his matches were particularly close at many points. He seemed to be in control. Despite everything going on in the background, the actual matches weren't very compelling themselves, and, and that was a big issue. And Tsitsipas, for the most part, on the men's side, also kind of rolled. He had the one tough match against Yannick Sinner 
in the fourth round. But other than that, his matches to get there are pretty easy as well. And then you had you know Nadal going out second round very meekly to Mackie McDonald, which was uh, a disappointment for the tournament as well. Casper Ruud, also the US Open finalist. But you had Andy Murray round. in the second round. You had Andy, Andy Murray, Murray round. Andy Murray was the highlight. Andy Murray was the I one mean, like, was really great. He was incredible, but he was out in the third round. But he was the yeah. But the first the two matches, I mean, he just eliminated the whole first week. That was crazy. That was, he was just the, crazy. He was, he was the heartbeat of the tournament for me, Andy Absolutely. Murray, for oh, sure. He was he, he was that, carrying the tournament. Hold that thought because I'm going to ask okay. you both for your most disappointing showing on both the men's and women's side, as well as okay. your most pleasant surprise. So let's get right into that, and Ben, you can continue. Then, who had the most disappointing showing for you on the men's side? Uh, probably it's a split between the top two seeds. I think both Nadal and Rude, both, you know, going out second round, it's tough to be happy with either of those. I mean, Nadal obviously had question marks about his, his form. He really has not played well since his injury at Wimbledon. His, his record has been pretty terrible and, and he, by his standards. And so him going out like that, uh, he was hurt. He was losing that match before he seemed to aggravate his injury late in the second set. He was already losing. So, um, so fans of which should be more concerned right now. Nadal, definitely. I mean, Nadal, Nadal is, you know, he's 36 already. He's, Marion just said it could be his last French Open already. In terms of him trending in a certain direction, the trend is as negative as it's ever been for Rafa in terms of his matches. I think he's lost more matches than he's won since Wimbledon, I believe. I mean, it's just unheard of for, for a player like Rafa, um, who's been so consistent to be on this sort of streak. And he's in danger of falling out of the top 10 for the first time since 2005. Uh, in a couple months, he's on pace to do that potentially. So... For Nadal, it's that that's serious. To the extent that you know you think he cares about ranking, maybe he'd be fine being ranked, you know, fifteenth or whatever going into the French Open. But and it wouldn't matter to him. He's still at the French Open if he's playing well. It wouldn't matter what his seed is. But you know, it's it's definitely concerning for him. But then Casper Ruud also, who I mentioned also, after making the U.S. Open final, you know, that kind of loss to Jensen Brooksby in the second round is definitely disappointing um, to have this sort of flat of a result. And that opened up that quarter of the draw a lot um, for a lot of American men who took advantage and not Brooks but then Tommy Paul and then Ben Shelton. There were some interesting stories from an American perspective that came out of it. Um, but for the tour, having no continuity from the U S open, which includes also the absence of Carlos Alcaraz, which I think was a big thing in the story to not have the number one and the most recent grand slam champion at the U S open missing from this tournament. is also a big loss for the tournament. Um, so we're right. just talking about the men's side, but I'm still overall disappointed. I think, there were some great moments, but the big picture, disappointing for me. I'll shine up. Understood. Ryan Bartoli, on the men's side, who had the most disappointing performance for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with Ben on, on Kasper Ruud, especially because uh, when you made the final of the US Open, when you made the final of the Masters, you tried, I mean, my thought that he would carry that momentum. And and for some reason, he actually said it very early on that he felt he was going to the Australian Open just because it was a Grand Slam. But he knew he would lose early and he would actually do his preseason after the Australian Open. I don't recall I ever heard that before from a player. Um, he went obviously to do this whole South American uh, tour with Rafa. And, and because of that, then he took his vacation after that and just, just the new season was starting basically. So he had no time to get ready for it. When you're already a Grand Slam finalist in two occasions, between Roland Garros and the US Open, you're in the final of the Masters, you're hoping to win a slam. I mean, that's the next step. It just goes without saying. And and you just accept you have no preseason and knowing that you basically have zero chance at the Australian Open. I, I just don't understand that thinking process. Um, I found it quite weird, but I mean, if he's fine with it, okay. Um, the second disappointment was honestly Danny Medvedev. Um, I felt like Daniil... 
you know, last year having two sets to love and the break against Rafa, I feel like he, he hasn't recovered from that yet. Mm. That's that's what I really? see. That's what I see when I'm analyzing his whole performances after that in Grand Slam, especially. I feel this is still in the back of his mind somehow. And, and Ben, do you agree? Ben, do you agree with that? What Marian's saying that he hasn't recovered yet. From yeah, I think there's moment? two things. I think there's two things that happen with Medvedev. I think there's the loss of the Australian Open, and then there's the war starting. And one of those two things, or a combination of both of them, has derailed him since last February. Absolutely. Marion, which of what Ben just stated is more likely the case? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, it, the men's tennis need those kind of players. You need a Casper Ruud who has a different game style, but can re sort of counterpower Nova from the back of the court. And we saw it in the final of um, the Masters. It's not so easy for, for Novak to beat him. You need some that someone like Daniel Medvedev with his big serve to be able to really push Novak as well to his limit. And because they lost quite early, that as uh, Ben said, it opened up the draw to some new names, which is great. But, you know, you don't give Tommy Paul a lot of chances when he's facing for the first, he's for the first time in the semifinal of a slam facing Novak Djokovic in the Australian Open. Let's face it. So that already is taking some sort of you know, the appetite for some great matches is a little bit away. But for me, Andy Murray, his two first matches and the effort, especially against Kokinakis, I mean, that kept me on the edge of my seat the entire night with the jet lag in France. We were just following it. It was absolutely crazy. And on the French side, my friend Sanya Mirza was playing her last Australian Open and she went all the way to the final of the mixed double. So that was definitely my highlights. And as you know, uh, you know, I really, really, really... I have a lot of respect for what Novak has done for the 22. So for me, globally, it was such a great Australian Open, even though I agree with Ben, the top names I could have really pushed Novak was just not coming to the call. And, and Stefano said the end in the final didn't either. Okay, let's shift now to the women's side. And, and very briefly, the same question. Who was the most pleasant surprise for you in this Australian Open? And Ben, get us started. For the women, I would say Magdalenette, for sure. I mean, a complete out of nowhere semifinalists, honestly, in a lot of ways, being unseated, not being very highly talked about. She beat uh, Caroline Garcia, as, as Mary was just mentioning. She beat Pliskova as well in the quarterfinal to get there. And also uh, Alexandra was another seed in the uh, round before that as well. Um, so that was just completely unexpected. I mean, it's not a surprise at all that we had a Polish semifinalist uh, with Igor Świątek and how good she's been. It's a huge surprise that the Polish semifinalist is Magda Lynette. Um, and yeah, she, that's just not a result you ever thought you would get from her, I think, in a lot of ways. So it meant a lot to her. That was pretty cool to see. Um, kind of random at some points. Yes, if you want more predictability in women's tennis, you don't expect Magda Lynette in the semifinal. But uh, a nice uh, feel-good result for her, I think, in this tournament. Marin Bartoli on the women's side, what was the most pleasant surprise for you? Well, before I say the most pleasant, you, we, I could have said also in the most disappointing Iga Shvontek. You know, seeing her going out so early in the tournament was, was really some, some sort of disappointment. But I've been picking Caroline just because I really felt she was she was able to uh, to do it that way in this year. But for me, the pleasant surprise was the three Vitova sisters. Um, I mean, for Brenda to qualify at such a young age, to be able to go into the main draw and for Linda to be in the fourth round and going only in three sets against Donna Vekic, knowing how young they are. Uh, you can see the new generation starting to push. You have Noskova, who was in the final in Adelaide the week before, who didn't perform really well in the Australian Open, but did really well the week before. And you can see this whole new generation starting to push the under-18. And, and that, for me, is going to be very interesting for women's tennis because we need to have some sort of rivalry starting in place, and we need to have some new young coming girls, like Coco did, like Emma Raducanu did, 
which our young kids can get excited about. And, and I felt those girls can be really the future of women's tennis and can really push also the ones that are established to, um, to go and, um, you know, to go and, and do better and, and even push their game to their, to their highest. But, you know, you had so many pleasant surprises for me to see Vika Azarenka 10 years later. She won in 2013. I was still playing and she's there 10 years later down the road with a baby boy along the way and making the semi-final and really giving a run for her money. To Zabalenka, that was, that was for me, um, really a huge effort. Uh, ben, you were skeptical of Marianne's answer um, when she decided to go back to negativity. Um, uh, she, when she said, uh, Iga Svantec, you audibly were skeptical. Why is that? Audibly? I don't know if I hope it was that audible, but no, I, I, said, I thought this mm. she, I, okay, mm, yes, I, I thought that Shantek's loss wasn't as bad because, I mean, she lost to Elena Rybakina, who made his Wimbledon champion, who made the final eventually. You know, that's a match that we circled as a sort of dangerous match for Shantek, and she lost. I mean, it was not something that was an unexpected loss in that sense. And Rybakina, you no, know, showed me, that, that, she's, that she's quite a su- top five, top ten kind of player at this tournament. For me, what is quite surprising is you can see on Iga's game that the areas where she has problems, in a way, I'll just keep coming back. You know, there is no improvement there. And and this is what you don't see in men's tennis, for example. You know, in men's tennis, you have seen, you know, Novak in the past, for example, maybe sometimes the forehand or maybe sometimes the serve was a little shaky. You can see how much work he has put in there. And he just brushed it off that entirely. And for two weeks, he has been ripping off forehand after forehand during this whole Australian Open. And the same on the serve. Every time he needed the serve, the serve was there. I just feel in the women's tennis... And, and especially with Iga, we know that when you play fast into the forehand, that could be the problem. And you can see those problems keeping coming back. So I hope once again, it's just, it's just, yeah, because they did not play too good on that day. But I just don't want to see the sort of repeating one great year and then the year later you're falling and then the new number one. You know, that whole cycle that I've been seeing for the past five or six years. I just don't want to see it again, please. If I could have a little bit of stability on the women's game, I would take it hands down. I, I think with I think with Iga, though, I think with Iga, it's tough to improve, though, when you're winning all the time. I think actually this month is helpful for her in sort of exposing some of her weaknesses. And clearly the tour and the two losses she took to Rubakina and to Pagula, you know, they found weaknesses in her game in the offseason, especially. I mean, Pagula lost to Shvantec so many times last year that it was important for her to go in the offseason and really study and see how do I beat this this player. And she figured that out at the United Cup and very decisively in a 6-2, 6-2 win. So now Iga knows that her serve can be attackable in that kind of way that her, like you said, the forehand can get rushed. And those gives her things to work on. It's tough to get better, <laughs> ironically, when you're winning 37 matches in a row. You know, losing is sort of sometimes what clarifies things for you and makes you uh, be able to improve. Interesting. Marion, would you agree with what Ben just said? I agree, but, you know, once again, I found it... I mean, I don't like to keep comparing the times, but again, when I was playing, um, it was so hard to spot one weaknesses, you know. You play Serena, tell me one weakness, I didn't, still didn't find it when I play against her. You play against Justina, I still didn't find one weakness. You play against Kim Kleisters, it was hard to see. You play against Amelia Moresmo at her pick, it was hard to see. Um, I, I just found that, you know, on the, even Iga won so much last year, you could tell, like even technically, that the forehand could have some issues. I mean, you could tell even on grass already when she lost against Alize Corne and, and she was coming towards in the end of, you know, that incredible run that she had starting from Indian Wells. And she would just keep on winning, 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 everything. So I just felt how that didn't get exposed before. That was my whole question. 
Um, and I'm sort of, in a way, glad, if I can say it that way, I think it's healthier for women's tennis that that get exposed. Because otherwise, it just put again the emphasis on saying, what are, in a way, what are the girls doing? Which obviously, it's easier to be seated outside and saying, oh, yeah, you should play like this, rather than being on the court and do it. But I felt like we have enough good players those days to be able to expose that. So I agree with Ben saying that he, it's healthy that the girls have been able to do their studies, the coaches as well, obviously. And then they're coming out with new solution. And I'm going to be very fascinating to see because Iga is such a smart player and she has such a good, very experienced coach around the corner to see what they're coming up with some solutions because they're going to have to come with some solutions because now the tactic plan is clear. It's like Aaron Garcia, the tactic plan is so clear. You just have to serve the body. Everyone now is serving the body. So, you know, when you start to have that and you know the other coaches are coming up with solutions at the number one player in the world, you want to stay there. So that's going to be for me fascinating to see what kind of training, what kind of adjustment she's going to do to be able to counterpower this. All right, let's continue now. The stars of the Netflix series, A Breakpoint, had early exits for the most part here. Is this a coincidence, yes or no, that our reality TV stars did not stick around all that long? Ben Rothenberg, you go first. I think it's largely a coincidence. I mean, just because there's so many different players and they have their own different stories and there's no real common reason why they were all out. Some of them were injured, some of them just lost early. You know, there's a different mix of, of why they lost. But I think it's a huge disappointment for the sport, honestly. I think it actually is. You know, people were kind of joking about the Netflix curse. But I think it actually is kind of a major problem for this show, which was so much, uh, you know, potential was placed on it by the tours of, oh, this is how we grow the sport. We get the Netflix show and everyone will adapt to these players. To have no continuity then between the Netflix show and the Australian Open second week, pretty much at all, is, is really disappointing. Uh, you know, that's something that's was seen on if you came to watch tennis and I don't know how much I have sort of questions about breakpoint about how much is actually going to encourage people to watch the regular sport or not I don't know I don't know that the two products have very much to do with each other in a lot of ways um, but definitely disappointing I, I don't know that there's a, a common reason that said they didn't pick you know they weren't following Djokovic and and at all and Alcaraz they were they were I following mean, some of the point. sort of they were following some of the middle people but at the same that's time for them to point. go over you know, ten or whatever and making the fourth or round or quarterfinals whenever Al uh, Felix, what is the last one left, whenever he went out. Um, yeah, definitely disappointing. You say, but no cause and effect is what you're saying. I don't think so. No, that seems, that seems okay. kind of hard. Yeah. Marianne, same question for you. No, it's not a coincidence, but it was just funny to see that, yeah, it was kind of a curse. But, you know, the player they picked once again, on, I mean, for Paula Badoza, it was unfortunate she picked up an injury in Adelaide. That's something that can happen at the beginning of the year. The body is rusty. You're coming off from the preseason. You have so much expectation on yourself. You know, you're a little bit more tense. You can pick up easily a muscle injury. I mean, you, we've seen it with Novak even. He was able to play through it, but, you know, maybe Paula once was, you know, great or something. For Nick, you know, he's not the most reliable kid. I mean, guy around the world, you, can, you know, you like he's not going to play a full schedule. Obviously, you think he's going to play in Australia, but then again, he had an injury. But the one they picked... It's just, and I mean, again, like Ben said, if you pick Novak, if you pick Iga, and if you pick Rafa, you're more likely sure that one of them is going to go out till the end. You know, it's just who are you picking to show as your first episode? I think they just didn't understand that maybe as a first episode that should have, and I don't know well, through the whole season how many times I've been able to film Djokovic. I don't know. Um, they were there in the in the Wimbledon because they filmed me when I was commentating, so they're probably going to show that. But it's just who you start with, you know, probably that was just yeah. a small mistake from Netflix or the mistake from whoever did that. But 
you know, I don't I think imagine. he has an effect. I oh. think people were genuinely interested to understand as, you know, as someone not like us, where obviously we know the tour inside out. Someone is just sometimes occasionally watching tennis. Okay. It turns out on this series, it's like, okay, I'm actually learning some stuff. You know, I, I didn't know it was going through that way. I didn't know the behind the scene. There's a lot of things that some people will be able to pick up and say, oh, actually, that's a sport I want to follow. I think it's the whole point of that series. And I don't think it's about, oh, I've seen someone on my screen and then I want that person to win. I just don't think that was the whole image or scenario that the people who filmed it wanted to have. I think the whole thing, because it's the people who have been doing Drive to Survive, right? So Drive to Survive, you have the same teams going out from every single Grand Prix to the other ones, okay? So it's the same names all the time. But you see the last one from us, they are not picking up points towards Mercedes. The whole point is to go through the whole spectrum. It's not only following the ones who are winning. Because otherwise, it's just a bit boring, to be honest. It's actually to see the downs and to see the difficulties and to see the tears and to see mental breakdown. It's just to see all of that. And then someone will say, oh, okay, actually, tennis is not that easy. I actually like that person, even if it sounds weak or she's crying or he's crying or he has difficulty. I actually emphasize for that. And I feel bad for her or for him. And therefore, I want to get interested and, and follow her results. And I don't think there is a direct correlation saying, oh, yeah, I just want to see someone on my screen and I want to see that person winning. I don't think that was the whole point yeah. of the series. I would imagine that the producers didn't get their exact wish list on who they wanted to follow. That is, would be my guess. But, but let me ask you, how good will this reality show actually be for tennis? Ultimately, Will it prove to be beneficial to the growth of the sport and viewership of the tournaments in real time? Yes or no, Ben Rothenberg? I, it can't hurt. I mean, it definitely can't be bad for tennis, but it's just a question of how big the bump will be is to be determined. And Drive to Survive didn't have its biggest bump after the first season either. I mean, it took a couple seasons for Drive to Survive really to become a major international phenomenon. It really has changed Formula One uh, fandom, especially in the U.S. People didn't care about Formula One at all. Uh, before Drive to Survive. Now people are aware of it in a much bigger bigger way because of this TV show. Tennis is starting from a stronger point. People are more familiar with tennis already than they were with Formula One, certainly in the U.S. Um, but I don't know. I don't. It, the ratings on Netflix for when they came out was, were not very strong for Breakpoint. Did not rank... I think it came in, like, in all the countries of Netflix, it was in the top ten in only, like, three countries. And it was, like, number nine in Australia and New Zealand and Ireland. That was it. Um, upon its release. So not a big splash that it made in terms of the ratings. Um, and I, I disagree with Mary, though. I do think some continuity between the characters that you get to know and care about on TV and then seeing uh, on, on the TV show and Breakpoint and then getting to see them on court would matter. Like, I do think people would be like, oh, I remember Taylor Fritz and his whole episode with the, the ankle and now he's out there and I'll watch him. But starting with two new strange players to you, I think it's going to be harder to get that continuity from. So I do think that having all the players go out was a real problem. And some of it was bad luck. I mean, they had, look, they had like two of the number two seats. They had Jabur and Rude, and they both lost second round. So that's bad luck for the tournament, even if their roster was not the best. It wasn't terrible either. Marion, how, how beneficial will this show actually prove to be for the game of tennis and for viewership and ratings, etc.? Uh, well, I think it, very, it would be very beneficial. Then I understand Ben's point because he's looking at it as a U.S. spectrum. But, you know, there is a lot of other country outside of the U.S. that actually would be very interested. And, and that was a great example with Formula One. Formula One has a very, very penetrating market in other countries. Then the U.S. was always the one being a little bit more 
behind because um, you have so many U.S. ports are just so big in the U.S. that it was difficult to penetrate the market and they have been able to do it with Drive to Survive. I think for tennis, it's just to be able to bring tennis to a lot more houses. I don't think it's specific to one market. I don't think um, when I was talking to Mickey Lawyer, for example, the head of the WTA, the whole point of that was not just not to target one single market. It was just to make sure that tennis and some familiar names are going to more houses. And obviously Netflix is the best platform for that because it's just accessible to so many. When actually right now, in, in when you look at where tennis is broadcast, is a lot more paid channels. You have to subscribe to this, to subscribe to that. A lot of people have Netflix. It comes out on the dashboard and they click on it and they say, okay, let me look at it. It sounds interesting. And that, that's the whole point of it. And if out of that, we get either more fans to watch or on TV or more fans to watch on the stadium, knowing that, you know, the tour is going, whether they're TP or the WTA to a lot of places around the world, that's a win. And for, that's the whole point of that, of that series. And where I agree with Ben is I don't think it would pick up in the first season. I think it needs a little bit of momentum. It needs a bit, little bit of traction. For people to start to say, okay, I'm going to watch season two, I'm going to watch season three, I three, when I get really interested, let me go back and, and watch season one. I think that's the whole point of that. And if we drive more fans into the stadiums outside of the Grand Slams, because right now the Grand Slams are very popular. When you look at the, the intendants at Wimbledon, the intendants of Ron Garros at the US Open, the Australian Open, it was just packed, right? So it's how we can drive that towards the other events. The small ITP 250, the small WTA 250, yeah. a small WTA 500, how you can get a pack stadium there. And I think it's by just putting tennis out there a lot more often than just during a tennis tournament. And, ben, and ben, I think they're quickly. doing a great job for that. Ben, very quickly, you took exception to something Marion said. Well, not except I just think it's not automatic. You know, as much as it might seem like it's going to be the thing that the Drive to Survive people will watch the show about tennis and then they'll start watching tennis, you have to bring them over. And I think it was a very tough Australian Open to watch from an American perspective for a lot of ways. I mean, ESPN was barely putting it on TV, real TV in the U.S. It was almost all only on streaming. Uh, and there's other different things about accessibility in terms of making that transition. That's something tennis has to be effortful about. It's, you have to make sure the fans know when and where to go, because tennis is a tough sport to follow. It's different time zones all over the world throughout the year. And it would be nice if, for example, like if Netflix picked up the rights to live tennis and had, had both in the same place, that would be amazing for tennis. If it was actually, you could make yeah. that transition. But there is a real gap to navigate between getting from watching these five episodes of this TV show, which are very specific in their sort of tone, to then want to tune in to watch, you know, hours of just normal match coverage. Those are very different products, even if the, the material in tennis is the same. And I think the tennis has to have a plan in terms of social media engagement, advertising, whatever it is to get those people from one point A to point B. Because I think that's not as, as simple as it might Marian. seem. Marion, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, if you look, Ben, at the attendance between the two finals, you had Elena Rybakina from Kazakhstan, Harina Zabalenka from Bielorussia. You can't tell they're the most like, incredible advertising countries in the world. And still you had two packed stadiums. Whether it was the men's final or the women's stadium, it was absolutely packed on both sides. So I think tennis is still going... Especially in Grand Slams, the Grand Slams are not the issue. When now I'm turning on my TV and I watch WTA in Lyon, it's absolutely empty. There is just no people. And it was Gabinia Muguruza playing, two-time Grand Slam champion, number one in the world. It was just empty. And that's the whole transition between the Grand Slam when it just drives almost by itself. Just because people love the name of a Grand Slam, you know, you go to Wimbledon. You don't actually go to watch a player almost, you go to a place. 
you know, you go to Wimbledon, you go to the US Open, you go to the Australian Open, you go to Roland Garros. There you have to make the effort to go and see one player specifically. And, and I think that transition, that's where tennis is suffering because you can't have one full stadium. What it, almost whoever is playing on the women's tour, I'm talking, the men's is slightly different, but on the women's, whoever is playing, it's going to be packed because it's a grand slam. And then you transition that two days later to a country, France, who has an history of tennis. And it's just nobody where it's a grand slam champion on the court. And, and that's where I feel that we have to bring tennis more often into the screen of people. So they are like, oh, okay, hold on a second. I have a tournament in my town. Let's yeah, but I don't know that Breakpoint is going to make anyone care about Lyon, honestly, because Breakpoint was so much about the biggest tournaments and it was mostly about Grand Slams and like finals and prizes and stuff. I do agree with you. The focus should be on getting the 250s, 500s healthier in the sport. That's where the problem is. I mean, the thousands are mostly okay. The Grand Slams are doing excellent, and you can put anybody in a Grand Slam final and people will show up. I remember seeing that at the US Open in 2014. Uh, it was like a Monday final. It was Nishikori and Chilich, and I was like, is anyone going to come to this match? And it was still full because people care about the US Open final. The US Open final is the it's attraction more than more than yeah, it's an event. It's a place to go and that's the brand. Even that will endure beyond any of these current players. You know, we will even with Federer and Serena and Rafa and Novak gone, people will still go to Wimbledon in the US Open every year. Those are not going to be touchable. Right. Where the variance is is at the lower levels of the sport. And yeah, that's something that Netflix I don't think is really making any effort to get people to care about two fifties, honestly, in their in their show so far. It would be nice if they did. Um, but yeah, I just think it's not automatic. And also, we'll say also, as much as attendance was good at the Australian Open, on Australian TV, they said ratings were 40% down from last year, which is a huge mm. drop. And also, they, they lost some big attractions. They lost Barty, they lost Curios. Uh, they didn't have uh, Nadal making the final like he did last year, but 40% is a big, big drop on domestic TV for the Australian yeah. Open. All right, shifting gears now, we talk about racing in F1. Um, very quickly, Goran Ivanisevic said that a majority of players in Novak's situation would have pulled out. Do you agree with that assessment? Yes or no? Ben? It's tough to know exactly what the extent of Novak's injury was to make that kind of declaration. But yeah, I think Novak is certainly tougher than the average player. And that's pretty clear. And, you know, it's part of why this older generation, honestly, is probably doing well still ahead of the younger generation. It's that there's a certain kind of toughness and determination and, and fortitude that the younger generation doesn't quite have. I mean, it's crazy that still, Novak Djokovic was born in 1987. And no one born after 1987 is, on the men's side has still won the Australian Open or French Open or Wimbledon. Like, that's crazy. There's some sort of shift in the makeup of players happening here um, for the worse in terms of being competitively strong. And, yeah, so I don't, again, I'm not a doctor. I didn't see Novak's scans. I don't know exactly what his sort of levels of anything were. But I think there is something to be said for sure that the, the older guys, Djokovic included, have been tougher on that basic level. Marion... Would you agree with the assessment that a majority a majority of players in Novak's situation would have pulled out? Yes or no? You agree? Yeah, I actually say 97% because they were probably thinking about Rafa and maybe in one other name that uh, came to his mind. But I, I I completely agree with him. He's made with something else. And, and again, I mean, for anyone who has played this sport, when you have to go what he went through last year, which is basically hell, for a month and a half or two months, feeling like he's standing alone against everyone else because he's believing into something. Then you have to agree or not with that, but that's a reality. And came out on that same tournament, injured clearly, and go on and win it with just losing one set to Enzo Cuaco. I mean, if you don't say hats off to that, I don't know when you're going to say hats off. This is just insane in terms of 
ability to pull, push back your, your own boundaries to just, you know, keep on plugging in every single day, keep on brushing on the side every single negativity that could come out and just, and just keep on going to the task. And, and, you know, when we see Corda, for example, pulling out, when I saw Corda played in Wimbledon a few years back against Kashanov, I said, this guy is going to be a top player. I mean, it was just so steel mentally. It was so strong, but yet he had to pull out during a match. And Novak didn't. And I, I put, I put Corda really, really being strong mentally. And, and I love this kid, but Djokovic is just something else. The guy was doing seven physio session a day to biofeedback machine to be able to heal his injury on each day off. And then you go, you put everything on the side, you perform, you win. And again, the day after, and again, the day after, and again, after. I can tell you that winning seven matches in the Grand Slam, it's a very, very long process. It's draining emotionally. It's draining mentally. You know, it's something else to follow it as a journalist. Now I'm in the media part. When I go through a Grand Slam, 50 days goes back relatively fast. You know, you go one, one by one by one by one. You go through a schedule, you do your matches, fine. As a player, it's a total different dynamic. To stay 100% focused on the task for 15 days in a row with all the press, all the craziness and all the circus that's going on, especially for him this year, that in itself is extraordinary. And you add on this on top, the whole injury he had to deal with. I mean, I just mo- the one, and he said it himself. That's one of the most incredible effort in sport I ever seen. All right, let's shift gears one more time and let's talk about the other half of what remains of the big three, now the big two. I'm going to ask you a predictive question. How many more majors will Rafa Nadal win? What's the number? It's somewhere between zero and three, I would imagine. Ben, what's your guess? My guess is zero. I think it's the safest bet at this point. I, you know, I'm ready for you to disagree with me. That's the point of this show. So I'm going to say zero. And because he's, his results have been really disappointing. Like, if you're believing in Rafa winning another Grand Slam at this point, you're believing solely in, like, the Rafa magic, which is real. And obviously we've seen it. We've seen it before. Exactly. We've seen it before. But at some point it will stop, right? Who would have thought, like, when Federer won the 2018 Australian Open for his, you know, second Australian Open in a row and beating when that five-set final against Chilich, that would be the last Grand Slam for a title for him. But it was. You know, he got to US uh, number one right after that, but he never won another Grand Slam again. At some point, the you know the run will stop. At some point, it will dry up. And for me, with with, with Rafa, I just think the results haven't been there to to justify. I mean, I think zero or one is the question, and I'm taking zero. Yep. Marion, I'm not sure that you disagree with Ben by your audible uh, signal, but um, yes, uh, how many? How wrong is Ben, and how many will Rafa win? I, I do you. disagree. I, I do disagree entirely. I I say one. I think one, and I think it's obviously one Roland Garros. I think Rafa knows that everywhere else it's just becoming really difficult. But I think he has one Roland Garros left in his body. And um, I want to be the one interviewing him when he will win his last Roland Garros and probably announce that's, that's the end, that's the final retirement. But I do believe that Novak will, right. will top all of that. And I think he will finish. Right. I think he has... All right, we'll move quickly here. At least three more for him. I would would go three more for Novak. He will finish at 25, 26, and one more Back to the women's side, and let's talk about the champion for just a second because we failed to thus far. All right, Sabalenka, you're now champion, and there was a point here she was serving underhand not that long ago. Has she now officially arrived? Ben, is she now there? 
Of course, I mean, she's holding a Grand Slam trophy. That's very much being there and being arri arriving, absolutely. You know, she was incredibly impressive, what she did from a year ago, where she really couldn't serve, and it was embarrassing and awkward to watch, honestly. This great player who was double-faulting, constantly going to underarm serves, like you said. It was it was really bleak for, for Sabalenka, and she was beating herself, and it was chaotic and messy and everything. And then, so for her, within a year, to put in the work mentally and physically to change her serve and to change her attitude and to survive that. And then, you know, the US, in the women's final... Which was a great match, by the way. That was that was the other highlight of the tournament. The two big highlights were um, the women's final and then Djokovic's reaction to the men's final. I think were the two best points. But the quality the women's final was incredible throughout. But when Sabalenka started that match with a double fault on the very first point, it's sort of like, uh oh, you know, this could be this could be rough with the nerves and the first time there and everything. But she recovered from that and just played really, really well. I thought that was a really, really great display um, for for Sabalenka and for women's tennis from Rubakina as well. Because I mean, like like Marion said, this was a very anonymous final in a lot of ways for most casual fans of the sport these are not right. too well-known names but she but, but, they, but they delivered they delivered and yeah and so she, and so what she did also last year i mean she beat Svantec in the semifinals of the year in championships as well which was another great win so it's not just this one result that she's had um you know in terms of building up and she won adelaide also she's won what 21 out of 20 21 tw she's won a lot she's doing great it's real Right, because being a major champion doesn't automatically mean that you are there. That but she's already won like eleven other feet. titles. She's been in right. the top five. Been number two before, as high as that. I mean, she's an established person. This is not someone coming like Radu Kanu, let's say, out of nowhere um, and being a complete surprise and having to process right. what this person can do. Sabalenka was a very known quantity on the tour, so I think she's very credible. That Marian, Marian, you're our only major champion here on this panel or any panel that we always have, so you know better. Sabalenka, is she now officially there? Has she officially arrived? Well, she was there for me since a long time, but it was about putting it together for seven matches in a row. That was really the whole question for her. But um, there's two things that I, when I analyze this whole Australian Open, for me, there's two things that strikes out. One is Arena saying, well, I've been stopping to work with a sports psychologist because I knew I had to figure out the solution on my own. And that's why I'm strongly believing in Having been out there and, and knowing how difficult it is, but the problem is no one can feel the exact same thing as you. And, and you have to find a solution yourself. And I believe in that. And I think because she went through that process, she came out a lot stronger mentally, um, through this whole thing, because knowing her now since quite a while, a few years back, she has been always having some roller coaster emotionally, you know, and, and for example, I remember I can recall a match in Ron Garros when she played and I said, I the year when Nastya made the final. And all of a sudden, she starts to swing well and she wins the second set very easily. And there is a stop in the match. And then after that, she just couldn't swing a ball in the court for absolutely zero reason. It was just all mental. You know, she was at some point could ex get her focus out and just losing it. And it's not because of her tennis. We always knew that she had the tennis when she played Maria Sharapova in the final in Chinese tournament. And it, they were just going toe to toe, hitting the ball, and just smashing the mm -hmm. ball. You know, she had the game. It was just about how mentally strong she could be for seven matches in a row. And we saw her at Wimbledon in the past. She was able to knock at the door. She was quite there. And then all of a sudden, this sort of last few steps, she was falling. And now to see her relifting really that trophy, I got very emotional when she talked about her dad and, and her dad watching from above and being proud of her. I think that was really, really well well said and and you could feel the emotion and you couldn't share that moment with her but there is one thing i want to say is and i think few commentators talked about it pam shriver included the way rebecca's coach is talking to rebecca's on the court it's just not something i can accept that's just i mean i just can't take that anymore 
and and I, I sincerely hope for her sake and, and for her to be able to continue with that game that she will be able to find a coach that talk with respect to her no matter what the result is because she's really trying her hardest on the court and to see someone going out hard at her in such a negative way and I've been seeing that in the past myself in much more events when I was with Yelena Ostapenko and she was playing those events as well in some, you know, practice court when there's no cameras or whatever, he's behaving in some way that's something I can't accept. And, and I, I, and I really hope for her that she's not only seeing the results and saying, yeah, okay, it's work. So I keep on going. And even if I get sort of abused mentally and with the wording and I just keep going because it gives me the result, but she realized that it's not healthy and, and she has to find someone that give her some respect. And, and we'll we'll leave that right there, table this conversation, and pick it up as we see as the season progresses. Um, both of you, Ben, Marion, thank you so much. Uh, folks, remember, follow on all social media platforms as well the audio uh, episodes of all the shows here on this site. For our panel, Josh Cohen saying thanks for watching. We will catch you next time for the next episode of Match Points right here on TennisMajors.com.